The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hello, hello. Hey, guys. How are we doing? I'm doing good, thanks. All right. Light should be coming on shortly. Well, hey, guys, have you got your Bibles? Let's get them on out. Amos chapter 4 tonight. We're just trucking on through. Nine chapters in the book of Amos, and we are almost halfway there. If you're looking for Amos, it is towards the end of the Old Testament. Don't be ashamed if you need to use the glossary. Um, I do it all the time. After Joel, before Obadiah. All right. So I'm going to read the text together. Um, we'll, just, we'll just all read through it. Usually I don't like to do that just because it can get a little dry just reading a giant chunk of scripture, but uh, for the sake of context and just even for the sake of letting God's word speak, um, I just want to read it with you guys. So let's read it together, Amos chapter four, and then we'll pray and get started. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks. Even the last of you with fish hooks and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, that which is leavened, and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them. For so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain to another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blights and mildew. Your many gardens, your vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. This is the word of God. Father, tonight, as we look at this chapter, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you come upon us even now, Lord? We, whether we realize it or not, are sitting here on this Wednesday night in this gym, 
and we are so thirsty. We're so thirsty for living water, God. Lord, we have drank and drank from the sloughs of what this world has to offer, Lord, through the news and through social media and through um, conversations and through movies and through just all that we see in this world, God, and we need the fresh springs of life that you give. God, we need the water that, that sits in our souls and brings refreshment to us, God. Holy Spirit, would you come and teach us through this text Lord, would you widen our gaze, our grasp of how big you are, how great you are, how amazing you are, how powerful you are. Lord, may may we not put you in a box tonight of what we think, but may we let your word speak and your word declare who you are tonight, God. Lord, your servants are here and we love you. Would you teach us, Jesus, our rabbi, our priest, our prophet, our king, in your precious name, amen. All right, Amos 4. So a little bit of background about Amos. I don't know if some of you guys are new. Maybe some of you guys have caught one here or there about Amos. But um, interesting little prophetic book, uh, kind of hidden in the end of the Old Testament, probably one that you may not have read before. And if you had, you probably don't remember um, a lot about it. Uh, Amos is a minor prophet, not because he's less important, but simply because he's smaller, smaller of the prophets. Um, Actually, interesting, Amos was the first, the oldest prophet, um, minor prophetic book that we have. So even though it's later, even though it's after some of the other small ones, it's actually the oldest one. So Amos was this guy, he was actually a shepherd, he was kind of a good old boy, he was kind of a country boy, okay, not a city boy, not a politician, but kind of a country guy from the southern parts of Israel. Now, remember, Israel is divided. I say this every week, but Israel is divided at this time into two kingdoms. You have the kingdoms in the south, which is called, anybody? Judah, okay, very good. And the kingdoms in the north, which is called Israel. Okay, confusing, right? Uh, the whole thing's called Israel, but so is the, the, the northern half, whatever. Divided into two kingdoms, south, north, Judah, Israel. Amos is from the south in a place called Decoa. He travels to the northern kingdoms, has a word from the Lord prophetically to speak judgment to the northern kingdoms. Now, the northern part of Israel at this time is being ruled by King Jeroboam II, and he was famous and infamous for bringing tons of wealth and prosperity into the country. So Israel at this time in the north where Amos goes into is very affluent. Very prosperous, very wealthy, very comfortable. They are at the peak in a lot of ways of their wealth. So, as you can imagine, much like our country, they're also very materialistic. (laughs) They're also very, as we'll see, spoiled. They're also very in love with their stuff, in love with their riches. And this is the scene that Amos steps into. So, verse 1. This is the best opening line ever. Are you ready for this? The first three verses, Amos is talking to the women, okay, of Israel. And here's what he says. He says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan. (laughs) Is that the worst opening line to women you could ever possibly imagine to say? Just like, like write that down, okay? If you, ever want, if you ever want a line not to use, if you're trying to get women to listen to you, calling them cows right away is probably not the best thing to do. <laughs> I read that, I'm like, okay, this is my teaching for this week. Let me unpack that a little bit, okay? When he calls, when Amos calls these women the cows of Bashan, 
Um, he's not referring to them as cows in the same way that we would probably call a woman maybe a cow today, like a heifer or whatever. No, totally different, totally, uh, totally wrong, so whatever you're thinking, just rule that out, okay? Um, think back to Song of Solomon, okay, if you don't believe me. Think back to Song of Solomon and think about how Solomon talks to his girlfriend. And remember, he, he calls her things like this. He says, you have dove's eyes, okay? Kind of weird, okay. And then he says, babe, you have teeth that are freshly shorn like sheep, <laughs> okay? Yeah, kind of weird. This one tops them all. Babe, your neck is like the Tower of David. <laughs> okay, if I told that to my wife, she would probably slap me. I don't, think that, I don't think she wants her neck to look like the Tower of David. I don't think the Tower of David has anything feminine or sleek about it. But here's Solomon telling his girlfriend that she has the Tower of David for a neck and sheep's teeth and just kind of weird. But different time, okay? This is 1800, I'm sorry, let me start over. This is nearly 3,000 years ago, 2,800 years from now that this book was written. And when he's referring to these women as the cows of Bashan, this isn't an insult. Well, it is partially. What he's saying is, is that they're spoiled, okay? Something about the land of Bashan. The land of Bashan was known for being extremely prosperous with tons of grass and the cows and the cattle that lived there were spoiled, Okay, they were spoiled, they were treated like pets. They were given everything that they wanted. They were choice cattle. So what Amos is saying here is that you women of Israel are spoiled. You are so prosperous. You've been given so much like the cows of Bashan that were the choice cattle because they were given so much fresh food. Treated more like pets, really, even than cattle. He said, that's what he's saying. And then he goes on in verse one, he says, who are in the mountains of Samaria, Samaria, the capital of the north in Israel. And he says, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy. Who oppress the poor and who crush the needy. Now guys, listen, you always know when something in your life becomes sinful or idolatrous or an addiction because it goes from being something that you just sacrifice some of yourself to get to, be, to being something that you sacrifice others to get. Does that make sense? You know when something's become unhealthy or idolatrous or an addiction in your life because you no longer just sacrifice yourself, you sacrifice others to get that thing. If any of you guys have ever been in a situation with someone that's severely addicted to drugs or alcohol or anything for that matter, or if you have ever been in that situation, you know that there comes a point where that person will do anything to get that next hit, and a lot of times it's stealing from people that even they're close to or love. Right? Because when you're severely addicted to something or when you want something so badly, it's usually not you that pays the price for it. It's usually the people around you. Right? So these women are so severely addicted to being rich and having comfort that they are treading over the poor to get it. They're living at the expense of the poor and the oppressed. Then it goes on, it says, who say to their husbands, bring that we may drink. (laughs) Babe, more wine. (laughs) Bring it on. We haven't got quite there yet. They're yelling at their husbands, telling them to bring them more booze. So it seems that these women weren't only trampling over the poor, they were also trampling over their husbands in ungrateful disrespect, commanding them to get more wine so they could feed their addictions. Are you guys kind of getting the picture here? This is what Amos is sort of just laying out so that we can see what's happening in Israel. Now, to contextualize a little bit, I'm gonna do this carefully, to contextualize a little bit, 
and to bring it into something that maybe is a little more applicable to us. This is more resemblant maybe to our culture than we think in some ways, okay? Um, Interesting, interesting era for women right now, isn't it? It's an interesting era for women because over the last thousands of years, historically, women have almost always been treated as lesser than men right? If you look into ancient civilizations, you look into cultures even just within the last 100, 200 years, and even cultures still in the world, women have been treated as lesser than men. But in our culture now, that pendulum has sort of swung, hasn't it? To where equal rights are in play, which is a very good thing, where women now are not treated as less than men. Now, just so you know, we're a complementarian church. That means that we believe that men and women are completely equal, completely equally valuable, but created differently, Okay? created for different things. I won't get into that too much. The interesting thing, though, about our age for women is that that pendulum that was clear over here where women were treated like lesser than men has swung, and just like it always does with everything in our culture, it swung right past where God would have it to be, and it swung clear over to another extreme, where now we have an issue of people that are fighting and fighting and fighting to say that women are actually better, rather than just saying we're both equal, we're both important, we have different things that we do. It's swung completely to the other side. Now, the reality is that that we've realized in this postmodern thinking is that the truth, and that is that women are extremely capable, women are extremely strong, women are extremely good leaders, and, and we all know that. Anyone denies that is a fool. Okay, I used to work in retail before this, and I had women that were my boss that would be my district manager or the, the VP of sales, and they were incredible at their job. They were phenomenal leaders. They were strong. They were influential. Women are very much those things. My concern is, is, <laughs> is that what God has intended primarily for women to do is to go out and conquer men? Now listen to this quote. Just follow me on this, Okay. I know this seems sticky and political, but just follow me on this. Listen to this quote by Sheryl Sandberg. She is the Facebook CEO, okay? This is like big shot CEO um, woman, and she writes lots of blogs and does lots of interviews about women should go out and take the jobs from men. She should go out and go be the CEOs, go be the presidents, all those things. And just see if you can catch something in here in this quote. She says, childcare is a huge expense financially. She says, it's frustrating to work hard just to break even, but professional women need to measure the cost of childcare against the future salary rather than their current salary. Wisely, women have started to think of paying for childcare as a way of investing in their family's future. Okay, that's kind of interesting. Okay, now let me clarify something here. I'm not saying that childcare is bad. I'm not saying that not staying home with your kids is bad. But what's interesting is that she is saying in her thinking that it's an investment to pay someone else to watch your kids and go off and conquer the business world, it's an investment for your future. Well, for what future specifically? For a future of finance. Okay, for a future of finance. So what's interesting and what's resemblant to me in our text is, is that she's saying you should sacrifice your time with your kids. Now, I'm not talking about a mom that works part-time or works full-time, but I'm talking about the moms that I knew some of them that I worked with that never saw their kids, that traveled all of the time, that were never home, and sacrificed the relationship with their kids simply so they could chase this dream of being the CEO, being the president. Who's paying the price? Is it mom or is it the kids? The kids are paying the price. 
Who's paying the price in our text? Is it the women or is it the poor and the oppressed? It's the poor and the oppressed. On the backs of these slaves is how they're acquiring the wealth. They're oppressing these people to get what they want. Now, what did I say again? You always know when something in your life becomes sinful and idolatrous because it will no longer, you no longer only sacrifice yourself for it, but you sacrifice those around you. This woman is saying that you should sacrifice the finances to, pay, to send off your kids so that you can pay off later with a bigger paycheck. Something's missing here. There's a, there's a, a thinking that's just wrong there. Now, I'm not trying to, to bring up a political thing. If I did, I apologize. I'm bringing up, just like Amos is bringing up, it's a heart issue, okay? I'm not trying to prick a political issue. I'm trying to prick a heart issue. And that heart issue, that heart issue is that God designed things a certain way. And he designed women in a very beautiful, amazing, strong, specific way. Only your mom can be your mom. Do you understand that? Only a mom can be a mom. My mom, I owe her more than anyone in this world. She has taught me so much about the Bible and who I am, and she invested so much in me, and only she could do that. The issue and the thing that worries me is that people are so quick to sacrifice their kids so that they can go chase the dream of something that's going to make them happy. Have you heard it said, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world? (laughs) It's so true. It's so true. God has designed each of us for an intensely important task in life. To cash that in as an investment in what you think is more important is foolishness. God has made each of us. Now, the same thing can be said to dads that never see their kids because they're chasing the career, because they're chasing this or they're chasing that. Whose expense are you chasing your dreams for? And what are you really even chasing? Someone always suffers when something's in an idolatrous position in our life. The women of Amos were spending life, but guess what? It wasn't theirs that they were spending. They were spending the lives of the poor and the oppressed, and they were thinking only of their comfort. They were thinking only of their joy. Verse two, the Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches. Each one straight ahead and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Now notice the Lord swears by his holiness. If you guys were here last week, we talked about this. He swears by his holiness. Does God have anything higher or more powerful to swear by than his own holiness, than his own power? He swears by his holiness. And what God's saying is that he's taking this issue of sin extremely seriously. He's taking it as serious as he is his own holiness. He's swearing by himself. And then he says, they shall take you away with hooks in verse two. Now that's interesting. If you guys have studied history, you'll find that only a matter of years later, they actually were taken away by hooks, literally, fish hooks. The Assyrians came in and led them out, led them into captivity with hooks, which is extremely interesting. What the Lord is saying is he's saying you're hooked, okay? You're hooked. You're hooked with sinful pleasures. You're, you're hooked with your material obsession. You're hooked with your love for yourself. Even though you don't see it right now, you're hooked, I'm sure, guys, I'm sure that that fish, when he's swimming along, <laughs> I'm sure that that fish tastes that worm for the first second and enjoys it until the next second later when he realizes what just happened, right? 
there's a moment there where you enjoy that worm, (laughs) where that fish is like, yes, this is great, this is fantastic, and then one second later, he realizes there's something behind that worm, right? And I think sometimes, whether it be Israel or whether it be you and I, we need to be reeled in and to realize that behind that juicy worm, whatever it may be, is actually someone that would seek our destruction, would actually be a hook, something that's actually pulling us in. It's kind of interesting imagery. The Lord is saying that you guys think that you're enjoying prosperity, you think that you're enjoying wealth, you think that you're enjoying this affluent life, but really you're biting into a hook, and that hook is going to come physically and tangibly later in the form of Assyria when they lead you away into captivity. It's kind of interesting imagery, isn't it? It's kind of profound. These women were most likely adorning themselves with with nose rings or whatever it was or, or, or lip rings or jewelry to, to sort of try to show how rich they were. Dr. McGee says, good old James Vernon McGee says, generally a nation reveals its moral position and its economic standard by the way women dress. When women are well-dressed and bejeweled, it denotes a time of affluence in the nation. Okay, so if you want to see how affluent or how rich a, a, a nation is at a certain time, look at how their women are dressed. Look at uh, how much jewelry they're wearing. This was a really rich time. So the women would be very adorned. What's so interesting is is they put something into their nose or something into their mouth to show and to try to, to show people how rich they were. What they don't realize they're doing is they're actually putting a hook in their mouth for Satan to lead them away. It's kind of interesting imagery. Proverbs eleven twenty two says, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. And careful what you swallow. It can easily become your master. In verse 4, come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. So this is kind of interesting. Now, just so you know, the, I'm going to look at three sections here, okay? Uh, the, the one that made me nervous and I thought might get rocks thrown at me is done. Uh, that was about women. Um, so, whew. Uh, anyway, I literally, I, I was so like, okay... I don't know if I should say this or not. I literally had Kathy and Jeremy read this today. I'm like, just tell me if this is stupid. Should I not say any of this stuff? Because it's kind of on my heart. And they were like, no, you're fine. So um, we'll see if I get any complaints. Uh, the second section is verses four and five. And this is where the Lord talks about false religion. And then the last section is uh, verses six through the, through the end. And that's where we'll talk about God's sovereignty. So verse four. The Lord says, come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Okay, so this is kind of weird. The Lord is literally through Amos telling Israel to come to the temple or to come to uh, these, these holy places, pardon me, and to literally transgress and to sin at these holy places. That's like me telling you guys, come to church on Sunday and sin. Okay, it's kind of weird. It's kind of strange. Now, what Amos is doing here is he's using sarcasm to make a point. Throughout all the Old Testament, lots of God's prophets and priests would historically, like through books of Psalms and things, would call God's people to God's place to worship him. They would say, come to Zion and let's worship the Lord. And what Amos is doing is he's using that same type of wording, but he's twisting it in a sarcastic way to say, come to the Lord's house and transgress. Instead of come to the Lord's house and worship, he's saying, come and sin. Why is he doing that? He's twisting it to make a dramatic illustration. What he's saying is, is that this is exactly what you guys are doing, so why don't you just come and do it? Here's the interesting thing about the situation that Israel was in, okay, is it wasn't necessarily that they were worshiping 
pagan altars at this time. In fact, they were worshiping God. But the rest of their life was in complete gross immorality. So when you looked at them, when you saw them, it would probably most likely look like they were actually doing really well spiritually. But God knew better. He knew what was really going on. He knew how they were actually treating the poor, the things that they were actually doing. And so what he's saying is, why don't you come to the temples and do what you're really doing? Why don't you quit faking it? Why don't you come be who you actually are? Then he says, bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Now that's interesting because according to the law, that wasn't what they actually had to do. They didn't have to bring their tithes every three days. They didn't have to bring their sacrifices every morning. But what Amos is saying is that this is what you're doing. Now here's an interesting thing. You have people that are completely hardened from God, want nothing to do with God, are doing whatever they want, and they're actually doing more religious function than they even have to. This is kind of funny. This is kind of bonkers. It's kind of weird. More than they were required to do. In verse 5, it says, Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. So again, he's sarcastically saying, Publish your good works. Let people see all these good things because you like to do that. So in other words, they were going to these holy places, they were giving their tithes, they were doing these sacrifices, and they were making sure everyone could see it, and everyone knew how religious and how spiritual they were. Now, three things, really quick, if you're taking notes, Jeff, you wanted something to write down, here it is. Uh, Three things, (laughs) no pressure on the way over here, he's all, I got my notebook, you better give me something to write down. (laughs) Like, this is what you want to hear from your boss, great. Um, So here we go, here we go, write it down. Three things. Number one, beware of religious extremes with no center. Beware of religious extremes with no center. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting how people could be doing even more religious actions, even more spiritual things than is even required of them, but be so completely unrepentant and hypocritical? That's an interesting concept. A lot of times the people that you think are the most spiritual, a lot of times the people that you think are the most religious are using that to hide behind and to hide a life of complete hypocrisy. It's quite interesting. Let me ask you guys a question. What do you measure your faith by? What do you use to measure your faith by? How do you know what your faith truly looks like? I've asked this question before, but I think it's good. I'm going to ask it again. If you stripped away all religious activity, everything in your life that is Christian subculture, if you stripped away everything um, in your life, Heritage Christian Fellowship is gone. Your Christian friends are gone. Christian radio, gone. Christian books, devotionals, all that, gone. How much you read your Bible, the the ministry that you serve in, the thing that you do uh, to serve God, gone. All Christian culture, community is gone. What would you have left? What would your faith look like? What would, be, what would be left if all of those things were taken away? Is it faith or is it subculture? Sometimes I fear for Christians in America, including myself, because here's the thing. I watched this interesting documentary about crossword puzzles the other day. And it's amazing because there's this subculture of crossword puzzlers in our country that are obsessed with crossword puzzling. Okay? They go to conferences and they crossword puzzle. And they interviewed some of the best crossword puzzlers in the world. 
they're the most socially awkward people you'd ever meet in the world, but they're so prideful because they're the best crossword puzzles in the world. They're the best. And they all come to this convention and they're all into the same things and they all hang out together and do crossword puzzles together and they, and they all look up to the best crossword puzzlers even though no one else in the world will know who they were. Our country, and especially the world right now with, with internet, is so full of subcultures. We have tons and tons of subcultures. We have subcultures for crossword puzzles. We have subcultures for World of Warcraft. We have subcultures for, for being a pastor. We go to conferences, we hang out with other pastors, and we have this subculture of interests that, that we're all based around. We're all into the same things. And it's really easy to get focused on the subculture and even forget what really matters. Now, what's interesting and scary about Christianity in America is we've built this giant culture of Christianity. And it's so easy to get immersed in it. I have the Christian radio. I have the Christian bumper sticker. I have the Christian music. I have all of it. The Christian Christmas cards. I have the Christian t-shirt. And that stuff's all fine. But is it true faith or is it just a subculture? Is it really mean anything or is it you just kind of jumped into a subculture that fits you, just like the people did with crossword puzzles. Just like people did with, with nerd stuff, fixing computers or whatever. I mean, there's, there's just this, this tendency to really get off track here. So what do you find your justification in? Is it things you've done or is it things that he's done? Number two, Beware of guilt-based compensation Christianity. That's confusing, right? Guilt-based compensation Christianity. And yes, I made that up. Let me tell you what I think compensation Christianity is. This is exactly what was happening in Israel at the time, okay? They were sinning a lot, and not only were they sinning a lot, they were enjoying sinning a lot. They love the sin that they're doing. I can tell you that for sure because they wanted to do anything to keep their sin, okay? And not only were they sinning a lot, but they were also worshiping a lot. They were also doing a lot of religious activity, So what they're doing is they're living in compensation Christianity. Okay, so I have all of this sin that I love, but check it out, I also have all of this religious stuff. And it sort of tips a little bit in the religious side. That's why they were going and giving their tithes every three days. That's why they were giving sacrifices every morning. That's why they were making sure everyone saw because they were compensating for the sin that they loved. If I just have enough religion this week to pay for what I did this week and for what I want to do next week, then I'm good. Guys, listen, we're hardwired for this kind of thinking. When you get a computer, it has a default setting, okay? And every computer that you get is gonna have a default setting. And in order to change that default setting, you have to get and actually change it. Okay, your guys' default setting, apart from Christ, is hardwired for compensation Christianity. Okay, that means that you will always try to pay for your sin on your own. You will always try to compensate the stupid things that you did for the world with religious things. And God looks at that stuff and he says, I don't care. I'm not concerned about how many times, how many times in a week you've tithed and how many mornings you've sacrificed, Israel. I care about your heart. That's why almost all world religions look the same. They all look like works-based mentality. Go to church all you want, hear sermons till you're blue in the face, but until you fall more in love with Jesus than you do with your sin, nothing's gonna change. It's just gonna be balancing it out. I go to church so that I can live like however I want to on Friday night. It's just compensation Christianity. Number three, beware of spiritual deafness. This is huge. Beware of spiritual deafness. 
What amazes me about this is that God's people were in God's place. They were worshiping God, reading God's word, and yet they had completely shut out God's conviction. Now, I don't know about you guys. Now, a lot of you guys in here, are, you come every week. Praise the Lord for that. A lot of you guys are in here on Sunday as well. The scary thing about that for me especially is that I could be in church every week and still have spiritual deafness, where I've shut my ears off. I've tuned out that frequency to where God can actually convict me. That's terrifying. That's exactly what they were doing in Israel. They spent so much time doing religious things, but they completely tuned out the voice of God. Let me ask you guys, why do you come to church? It seems like a silly question, right? But seriously, why do you come to church? Is it because there's some friends here that you like? No, I'm not, I'm not saying that, that every time you come to church you have the perfect heart, trust me. A lot of times I come here and I just wanna go back to bed. But do you come here hoping and wishing and asking that God would change you, that God would feed you, that God would give you what you need? So this morning I'm driving to Jacksonville, uh, good being early, to go and study and to finish my sermon. And um, I kind of got up in a hurry. My, my daughter was sick last night and I didn't get a lot of sleep, so my brain's fuzzy and I'm driving out and I start getting this headache. And it's like a 15-minute drive out there. And the whole way I'm like, man, I'm so thirsty. If I could drink some water right now, my headache would go away. If I don't drink water soon, I'm gonna get a headache all day. So I'm like kind of driving fast, like trying to get out there so I can get some water. And this whole way I'm just thinking, man, I'm so thirsty, man, I'm so thirsty, I'm so thirsty. And right as I get to Goodbean, I look over into the, the, the passenger seat And there wasn't just a water bottle there. There was an entire case of water bottles. Like, I'm not even kidding you, like an entire case left over from Easter that I had grabbed and threw in my car to take backstage for the worship team. And it was sitting there the entire drive. And if all I would have done is just look over and see that there was water right there, I could have, and I, of course, grabbed one and began to drink it. I mean, isn't that just silly? But isn't that so how it is? I mean, it's right in front of us so many times. We're so thirsty. I prayed it in the beginning, but we just don't realize what we need. We don't realize how close, how attainable it is. It's so easy to come here and to hear me or hear Jeff or hear Jeremy, and yeah, I know this, I've heard this, whatever, and to say, I'm not getting fed, but really, the water's right there. I mean, guys, I can't tell you how many times I hear that. I sit down in meetings with people, and they say, I'm leaving your church, or they say, I'm coming to your church, and they always say this. They say, I'm not getting fed. I'm not getting fed, and I say, okay well, I know the church you came from and I know the church that you're at now and, and I, don't know, I don't know that I believe that. Is it really that you're not being fed or is it that you're not looking right next to you to see that there's water there? I think sometimes we just aren't looking for God to speak. We aren't asking for God to speak. We're waiting for the preacher to jump up and down enough to get me excited, to make me feel like something, but really we're not coming expecting, saying I'm thirsty, God, I need this. I have to have this. And I know that you can give it to me. Now, Israel was at church, so to speak, every day. And they missed it. They were living in complete spiritual deafness. How do we combat that? That's what I hope that the last verses will answer for us. Let's look at this last chunk. I'm not going to read it all again because I read it in the beginning. But I want you to notice something. I went through and I highlighted and underlined all of the words I. How many times it says I in here? The Lord says, I gave you cleanness of teeth to Israel. He says, I also withheld the rain. He says, I would send rain on one city and send no rain to another city. 
He says, I struck you with blight, with mildew. He says, I sent among you a pestilence. I killed your young men with a sword. I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. I overthrew some of you. I will do to you, he says, I will do to you what I will do to you, for I am, he says, I am in Exodus, right? The Lord is the one causing all of these things. And if you notice, if you're observant, you'll see that not all of them are actually good things, right? He said, I caused all of these things to happen to you. Let me ask you guys this. How in control is your God of life? How in control is he? How in control are you willing to paint him in your mind? How in control are you willing to allow him to be? I mean, he already is what he is. But how in control of your life is he in your mind? Is it just the happy things? Is it just the spiritual things? Or is God God in control of everything? Is God in control of everything? Listen to this. Alec Matea, a commentator on these specific verses, he says this. He says, words could not be plainer. He says, unless we wish to trim God down to the poor limits of a God nice enough to suit our emotions and small enough to fill our logic and a feet enough to leave room for our will, we shall bow before the sovereign revealed in this passage. What he's saying is, is are we trimming God down to fit into our emotions? Well, I don't like to think about some of these things that God says he did in here. Well, I don't, I don't think that, that doesn't fit with my, with my logic. If, if the God of the universe fits inside of our head, is he big enough to worship? That's why I love, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you guys. Teaching Mark was way easier. It was way easier because, man, these stories, I've, I've heard them before. I get to Amos and there's some tough things in here. There's some tough things. There's chunks of scripture where, where judgment is being pronounced and nothing has been more healthier for me. Nothing has been more healthier because it's forcing me to take a second look and say, am I willing to let God be who God says that he is in the scriptures? Rather than imposing, imposing my Western evangelical watered down milk toast theology onto God of the universe who is a holy fire, Amos just preaches it how it is. He says, this is who God is. Last week we talked about his holiness and how his holiness is severe, that God is all about his holiness. And this week we're faced with another reality, that God is in complete control. He's in complete control. I don't want to trim God down to fit inside of my emotion or trim him down to fit inside of my head. I want to worship him in all that he is, for all that he is. Listen, how deeply we choose to believe and the total and complete control of our God in every aspect of our lives will largely determine how deeply we can enjoy the gift of salvation. If we don't believe, let me ask you this, if we don't believe God is in complete control of our lives, of everything, we love to ascribe to him all of the the happy and good things, but even all of the hard things, If we don't believe that God is in control of every aspect of our life, then who is? Think about that. Is it me? Is it Satan? Gosh, I sure hope not. I sure hope I'm not the master of my soul because I will drive this ship into the ground. I'm so glad that God is in control and I can understand God's grace for me so much greater when I understand that I don't have to earn it. 
that he's in complete control of everything. He causes the flowers to grow and to fade. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He does whatever he pleases because he's God. And it's not for us to cram him or trim him into our Western thinking. It's for us to say, God, you are who you are, and I worship you for who you are. And when we realize that, and when we worship him for who he is, we're always left in awe, in awe of his grace, in awe of his goodness. I was thinking about it today. There's no clearer moment in life, and I know all of you have experienced moments like this. There's no clearer moment in life when as human beings, we stand overcome by our simple lack of control in our lives. You guys ever had a moment like that where you thought things were so planned out? A lot of people experienced it a few years back when the economy just went, right? Everyone had stuff saved. Everyone had their 401ks. Business is going good. We got our house. All of a sudden, everything's gone. Or maybe it's your health. One day you're fine, everything's great. The next day you go to the doctor, everything's gone. Your health is gone. Maybe it's a natural disaster. Can you imagine just sitting on the shore enjoying the beach and all of a sudden you see a tidal wave and realize that you have nothing you can do about it? (laughs) A thing will swoop you up and take you away and you have no control. My heart can stop beating right now and I have no control over it. Yet I live like I have so much control over my life, but in reality I don't. And I think the clearest moments as people, as Christians, the clearest moments that we have are those moments where God strips things away and allows us to see that we have zero control. Now, is that scary? Well, not if God is perfect and loving. If God loves me with perfect passion and perfect eternal love that does not run out, he proved it on the cross, then nothing is more comforting than a God that is complete control and loves me completely and totally. Where else can we fall in those moments besides the arms of God? We all will experience those moments where we have nothing, where we've been stripped of everything. But in those moments, are we gonna say, God's not in control anymore? What do we have left but God? I'll close with this. I've been reading this book called Unbroken. Have you guys read that, read that book yet? It's this phenomenal book about this guy who was this Olympic runner, and I'm only halfway through, so if you've read it, don't give me the end. But I don't know if he survives or not. Uh, but he's this Olympic runner, and he's this guy that just takes control of his destiny. He, he trains hard, and he, he, he competes in the Olympics, and he makes it super, super far up. And then the war breaks out. He gets, gets thrown into the war, and he, he just goes through crazy stuff. I can't, even, um, I can't even begin to explain how much stuff he went through. They're stranded in the ocean for like 47 days or something like that with like nothing. Just wasting away. Then they get thrown into this camp where they're treated like garbage and beat and spat on and stabbed and all this crazy stuff all day, every day. And I wish I, could, I could, wish I would have highlighted it, but he says something in there. Just He was overwhelmed by the lack of control that he now had over his life. There was nothing he could do about it. He's stuck in the ocean. He's being beat up by Japanese people. He's in this, in, he's in this camp. His plane's shot down. He couldn't control any of it. It just happened. I don't know the end of the book. I hope he gets saved. I really do. Because good grief, how can you realize that? That you have no control and then realize, well, someone's got to have it, Right? Someone's got to be in control. Don't be afraid of those moments when we realize that because in those moments, we have the clarity to realize that God is and that he knows what he's doing. Let's trust him in that. Let's live like that. I really believe that if Israel, at the heart of this, if Israel would have understood, why, I mean, why does God spend like 10 verses going on about how he did this and did this and did this and did this and didn't do this if he wasn't trying to drive home something? If Israel just would have seen that God's sovereignty 
was over their lives, I believe that his goodness would have softened their hearts and they would have come to repentance. So let's learn from them. Amen? Let's stand real quick, guys, and just pray and head on home. God, I'm just thankful tonight, Lord, and I'm just humbled. I'm humbled, Lord, by having to approach a text that my mind and my emotion even doesn't know how to process. And Lord, I'm thankful for that because, God, if if you fit into what I thought, then you would be a God I created. But the fact that you're a God I cannot fully understand just shows me and proves me that, God, you're so far beyond what I understand. You're so far beyond a God that I could have made up or created in my mind. Lord, I I just pray passionately for each person in here because, Lord, I know the dangers of being at church every week, as funny as that sounds. Lord, may we never become deaf to hear your voice, to hear your conviction, God. May we never worship so that we can compensate for our sin, but may we come, Lord, with our sin to you knowing that you've cleansed us, you've forgiven us, and humbly ask you to take it away. Lord, help us from being like, even like these women, Lord, in Israel that were so spoiled and so consumed with their material things, Lord, that they would sacrifice people's lives for their addictions. God, help us to treasure you above all things, Lord. Help us to believe your sovereignty tonight and tomorrow as we drive home, God, I pray you would fill our cars with good conversation, that tonight in our prayers as we invite you into our homes, Lord, that we would thank you for your sovereignty and your goodness, God. Thank you for this church, Jesus. Just lead us. You're our pastor. In your precious name, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great evening. We'll see you Sunday.